persecution or war or natural disasters, and they are forced to leave. And then they're forced to go to another country that probably isn't really prepared for such an influx. And one of the benefits of living between the Pacific and the Atlantic Ocean is we don't get a lot of war-torn exiles coming to America easily. And so we have a tendency to kind of think that exiles are something that happens over there. You know, the issues of what that would look like, you know, that's for, for Europe to figure out or parts of Africa to figure out or Asia. But it doesn't necessarily hit us very close to home. But one of the things that the Bible has laid out for us from the beginning is that every single one of us in this room is an exile. We are not where we want to be. We are not where we're supposed to be. And because of that reality, we can identify more and more if we allow the scriptures to impact the way we think. We can identify with those who are kicked out of their homeland, kicked out of where they want to be. We have the first story of Adam and Eve, right? God's first created humans, his children, if you will. And they are given very simple directions of which they disobey. And because they disobey their father in heaven, they are exiled. They are kicked out of the garden and they are forced to wander. And we have been wandering ever since as a people. We have been seeking a home. We've been seeking something that we can't quite put our finger on. But in moments, we know in our heart of hearts that there's something missing in us, something that we long for. And the story continues with Israel. And they are also multi multitude of times exiled from where they're supposed to be. And the story we're going to focus in on today is probably their most famous exile. When the Babylonians show up in force and remove them from Jerusalem and cart them hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away to a country and a culture and a place that they are not at all familiar with. And they are going to be longing for home. But one of the things we're going to be called to think about is to not long for something that we could find on planet Earth but to look for something, the true longing of our hearts that can only be found in God's promised land, which again is not located on earth. And what I would like to do is take a look at these three famous men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and evaluate a little bit, how did they live as exiles? How did they live in a culture that was increasingly hostile to their belief system and yet maintain a strength? And uh, I think they're going to be able to give us quite a few thoughts as we look into it. So the first thing we have to evaluate is what happens when you find yourself being undermined and attacked around you. Um, and I think most of us, we, we go one of two routes, right? We have the, the list up here. You either attack back or you assimilate. You attack back or you assimilate. And one of the central voices at this time in Jewish history was the prophet Jeremiah. And we're going to take a look at chapter 29 in just a minute. We're going to spend most of our time in Daniel chapter 3. But for a moment, we're going to take a look at Jeremiah 29. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there in just a minute. Um, but he's going to basically tell the people of Jerusalem, surrender. Surrender to the Babylonians. Your way of life, as you know, is over. God is not going to come and defend you. He is not going to do what he did for Hezekiah. He's not going to send an angel that's going to protect you and drive out the enemies. In fact, this is long overdue discipline and judgment for 1,500 years of disobedience. You know, it, it's, this is a long problem that's now finally meeting judgment. And Jeremiah is very, very, very clear. But you can imagine if you've been living in the same land and you have the temple and you've seen God do all these miracles in the past, you can understand why they're going to be like, no, Jeremiah, you're one voice. We don't like what you're saying. We have a bunch of other prophets that are saying we're going to win. So we're going to listen to them. And what's going to end up happening is the Babylonians are going to invade. And after a year and a half, the city of Jerusalem will be overthrown. 
and a whole bunch of people die of starvation, a whole bunch of people die at the edge of a sword, and about a third of them that survive are going to be taken as a group and carted off to a foreign country in the form of the exile. And the people there are really going to battle because for the most part, most of the Jews who are taken out of Jerusalem and carted off to Babylon assimilate. They take Babylonian culture, they never return to the promised land when they're allowed to, and they fade off into history, never to be seen or heard from again. Most of them. And there were a few who picked up swords and tried to fight the Babylonians, and they were put down without mercy. So the question is, what do you do? And we live in a very similar place right now, right? Jeremiah is warning, and we have this temptation to kind of like, we're either all in or we're all against. And there's going to be a third, a third way. On the picture on the right, uh, I'm going to draw from history. The Luddites were a famous group of people in the 1800s that were very much opposed to the industrialization of the world. They were like cloth makers and clothes, clothing people, and they did everything by hand. And suddenly machines came along and could do what they were doing quicker, more efficiently, and cheaper. And so they were being replaced by technology. And so they had a rebellion and they smashed a bunch of equipment and tried to like make things stay the way that they were. And that did not work, right? If their, if their strategy would have worked, we would still be sewing our, hand, our clothes by hand. But now fast forward a couple hundred years. You see the, the struggle with technology today. There are those of us who are like technology is more or less bad and we should stay away from it, right? We're, we're like the Luddites. Or some of us are like, we're all in, you know, and you can kind of gauge it by generation. I'm not going to have you raise your hands, but how many of you are very skeptical of technology? Don't raise your hands. Yeah, some of you are like proud, right? And if you're under a certain age, probably 30, technology's like your lifeline. So I won't have you raise your hand, but how many of you are like, I'm all in. Every time there's an update and a newest app, it's on my phone. We have a tendency to either embrace the whole package or reject the whole package when something comes against what we're familiar with, with what we're comfortable with. And the Israelites are going to find themselves in the exact same place that we are going to find ourselves in a culture that's constantly shifting. So here's the question for us. What do you do? How do we walk this line? And it's a very, very careful line. And Jeremiah, who is the first prophet to tell them, surrender and give up because God's against you here. This is actually God's will for you is going to be the very same prophet who's going to tell them how to live as exiles in a foreign land. And this is where chapter 29 of Jeremiah comes into play. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there and I will read just part of this letter. So he's still living in Jerusalem. It's under siege. It's bad news. He writes a letter to the, to the exiles who'd already been taken. So if, you, if you're familiar with that story, Nebuchadnezzar comes three times and eventually takes everybody. But the first couple times, he just takes the select elect a select few of people of which Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are one of them. And he writes a letter to those people. And here's, in chapter 29, one of the things he writes, starting in verse 7. I'm oh, just kidding. We're going to start in verse 5. Chapter 29, verse 5. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, and eat what they produce. Marry, have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons, and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, and this is the hard part, also seek the peace and the prosperity of the city in which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. You see what he's saying here? Don't just 
live in Babylon, seek the good of the Babylonians. Seek the good of those who are actually working against you. Because if they prosper and come to see God, and we'll see how that's going to work out, if they come to see God in a powerful way, then that's going to make their lives better and your lives better. So how do we seek the good of the culture that we live in right now in America? How do we seek that good? And we're going to take a look at these, these three men because they really found a way to take what Jeremiah wrote to them. And they would have received this letter. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have read what Jeremiah wrote. And they take this to heart. And they are able to do this very thing. They're able to live the third way. Not attack the Babylonians and try to undermine it. And also not to just assimilate and let the Babylonians dictate what is going to be true for them. So there, here's where I'm going to take some assumptions here. Okay. My first question is, in what ways were they prepared? Uh, or now, let me rephrase. Uh, one second. Yeah, I actually wrote it down. Good for me. All right. What preferences did they let go of? What ways did they let the Babylonians kind of tell them how to live? What Jewish cultural values did they say, you know what? This is not worth fighting for. I'm going to give this up. So go ahead. Give me some feedback. What things did Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego let the Babylonians control in their lives, if you know chapter one specifically. Want me to get you started? You're some of you are staring at me. Language. They are taught Babylonian. They give up speaking Hebrew. And that cultural change is going to last the rest of Jewish history. Like Hebrew will no longer be the primary language after the Babylonian captivity. They give up their language. What else do they give up? Their names, like famously Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are Babylonian names. Now, how many of you would have a hard time with someone walking in and being like, you know what, you've been called this your whole life, no longer. And the names that they're given are like worshiping the false gods of Babylon. Like, it's not just like they named, you know, one guy is William and now he's Robert. It was, your name used to be the Lord is God. Now we're going to say Marduk is God, you know, or Bel is God. They're going to change their names and basically determine how they're going to be seen and heard. What else? Give me some more. They're going to have their names changed. They're going to learn the language. They're going to be re-educated. They are going to be told, you must learn Babylonian culture, laws, and religion. And guess what they do? They don't just learn Babylonian laws, cultures, and religion. They excel at it. They become the, the elite of even the elite who were captured. There is so many ways where they're like, I'm just going to let these things go. My cultural language, my cultural name, the things that I, I have held, they're going to look Babylonian. They're going to be dressed like a Babylonian. And as far as anyone could tell, they've become Babylonian. But if you know chapter one, what is the one thing they refuse to do? They will not eat the meat that the king assigns. Now, we look at this, right? That seems a little strange for us. Because think about it. They give up their name, their culture, their look, and yet they're going to make a big stink about not eating a certain kind of food? Right? How many of you would have a much more difficult time learning the language? You know, like That just seems like so far out of your field. Or being called by a different name. How many of you, if you were carted off to Russia right now, you would eat the borscht, you know, or whatever Russian food there is, and without even batting an eye at it? But this is the thing that they draw their line in the sand, and they say, nope, not going to do this. Now, how did they come to that decision? For them... Eating meat sacrificed to an idol by way of Babylonian values was their line in the sand to say, we are people who worship and serve the Lord God. We do not eat pork. 
we do not eat these kinds of foods that the Babylonians eat. And they're like, we refuse to do this. Now, they do it in a very diplomatic way. They're like, test us in this. Let us eat vegetables only, and let's see how that pans out in chapter one. And it works out very well for them. They're just as healthy as anybody else. But this is the line for them. They're like, you can take our name. You can take our language. You can take the way that we address. But you know what you can't take? You can't take our faith. And the way we're going to demonstrate our faith is we are going to continue to follow the dietary codes that our family taught us. And here's my first Father's Day and maybe my only Father's Day point. We do not know the parents of these four men, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We don't know them. We don't know what they were like, but what do we know about them? They had imparted something to their children that when their children got taken forcibly into another culture, they were not only able to live in that culture, they thrived in it. And here's, here's what I want us just to think about for those of us who are fathers. Our kids, especially if we have young ones, are they're going to be going into Babylon soon enough. Now, maybe it's off to college. Maybe it's into the military. Maybe it's just in the workforce. But is it safe to say that outside of this very friendly place, the values outside of this place look very different than the values that we teach? And if we are not careful, we can leave them unprepared for this because they are going to have their day where they're going to be told, you know what, this isn't how we do things here. I know you kind of have this weird value thing about not cheating on whatever or not doing this, but if you're going to be part of our culture and part of who we are, you're going to have to give that up. And we want to be actively teaching and preparing our kids for that day. And again, we don't know Daniel's family background. We don't know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But we do know that when they found themselves in Babylon, they were able to figure out how to maintain their faith and still walk as a Babylonian. And that is a very, very powerful tool that we can, if we are actively seeking to impart upon our children. Now back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They find themselves in a very difficult place. We're going to fast forward a few years. Because in one way, there is no real benefit to staying faithful. Uh, they are never going to be going home, and they know it. Jeremiah, in the same letter that we just read, chapter 29, the one that we also read in church where it says, I have plans for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, that's all in the same letter. Those verses that we love are given to a group of people who are kicked out of their country, and at the end of the letter, he says, oh, by the way, you're going to be there for 70 years. That group of people who's carted off to exile, they're never coming home. They're never making it back to temple worship. They're never going to rebuild their vineyards. They're done. They won't make it through, but their grandkids will be able to return. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego hear this news. They're young men, and they're done. They're never going to they're never going to make it home. There is no silver lining of going back. And yet, they maintain their faith. And the question is why? Why did they do this? And in part it's because they actively believed what Isaiah 43 says. That when you go through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the fires, I will be with you. They will not set you ablaze. Because even in the midst of exile and difficult places, they were absolutely convinced that God had placed them there and he had a work for them to do. Because that's one of the messages of Jeremiah, that God is sending these people to conquer you in order to do something great through you. And one of the awesome parts of Ezekiel, which is another prophet at this exact same time, when he's watching the temple, he watches the glory of God rise up out of the Holy of Holies, which to a Jew would be horrific because that's the center of worship and the presence of God. And what do they watch happen? That fire, the presence of God moves east 
to the city gate, and then it goes east over the Mount of Olives and heads to where? Babylon. Because you see, God's going to be with his people even in their exile. Because this is not the Babylonian understanding of life where the gods are fighting in the sky and the Babylonian gods beat the Jewish God and therefore the Babylonian gods are superior. This is God saying, this is my work in you as a nation in order to do something good for you. And I will be with you even in captivity, even in exile, even in transitions, different places. And so they're able to stand. They had no earthly reason to do so. You know, most scholars believe that these, that these four men were probably castrated, so they were never going to have a family. They were never going to have the opportunity to impart to their children what they knew. They were never going to return home. And yet, they still walk faithfully. And one of the ways we're going to see how they do that is going to show up in chapter 3. They have a confidence that God is with them, that nothing is going to happen that is not with God's allowance, and they're going to find themselves in an even more difficult place. So it'd be one thing to stand before the king's servant and say, I refuse to eat these meat that you're giving me. It's going to be a whole different ballgame in chapter three, a few years later, when they're going to stand before the king and a furnace. And that's where we're going to be given a point to hold on to when it comes to this question. How do you do this? How do you walk this third way? How do you not attack the culture? How do you not assimilate to the culture? How do you walk the middle path? And here's how they are going to do it. Daniel chapter 3. Um, I'm going to read verse 6 to you. Again, uh, I'm assuming most of you are familiar with this passage. Um, the king sets up a golden statue, which many of you are familiar with, and the command is given. Here's the command, verse 6 of chapter 3. You must fall down and worship this image. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. That is the explicit command. You must bow down and worship this golden statue as a sign of submission and obedience to Babylon. And if you don't, you'll be thrown into the fire. Now, here's the crazy thing. We, this is in one way more extreme and less extreme than we think. This is more than just make a pledge of allegiance to Babylon, but it was a little bit less than what we think too, because they were allowed to go to synagogue and worship on Saturday. They're allowed to believe in Yahweh, whatever that means for them, but here's the implicit command. And this is the same command we're given. You can be religious, you can have your faith, just keep it private and don't bring it into the public. Don't make it a work issue kind of thing. Be a Christian all day long on Sunday. Please don't make it a big deal on a Monday. So just bow down, worship this gold statue, declare Babylon superior, and then you can go back to worshiping Yahweh and do all the things that you do. No problem. Now, again, everyone else in Babylonian culture had no problem with this because they fully believed that the Babylonian gods were superior to theirs. If their Babylonian gods were not superior, we would not be underneath a Babylonian control. But you see why the Jews can't accept that? Did the Babylonian gods beat up on Yahweh and yet they're just superior and therefore we submit to these new gods? Jeremiah makes it clear. This captivity is God's doing, not the Babylonians. In one sense, in Isaiah's passage, which happens 150 years before this, Isaiah says, God kind of like whistles. He's like, Babylonians, come on over. It's like God summons them. They're underneath of his control. And he uses the Babylonians as his discipline tool. And so the Jews cannot say that the Babylonian gods are superior to their God because they fully know why they're there. And it's not the Babylonians' choice. It was God's choice. 
And so they cannot, they cannot bow. They cannot bow. They cannot sing the national anthem. They cannot declare Babylonian gods superior. They have to stand. Now, this has been an ongoing struggle for people of faith from that point to early Christian point to now, right? Because in the same kind of way, when Christianity began to explode in the Roman Empire, what was the phrase that the Christians were saying everywhere? Christ is Lord. And what was every single person in the Roman Empire saying? Caesar is Lord. And if you walked around declaring Christ is Lord, they looked at you as like, are you an insurrectionist? Who is this Christ that you're saying is on par with Caesar? And the Christians would raise their hand and be like, actually, we don't even think Christ is on par with Caesar. We think Christ is superior to Caesar in every possible way. And so what was happening to these early Christians? Thrown to the lions, set on fire as candles, because they said, we must not bow down to anything other than the Lord our God. And the same commands and the same cultural pressure is here today, isn't it? Now, you may not be burned alive literally, but you could definitely be burned by people who you love and respect if you walk around saying things that are going to go against the values of the culture. And yet, one of the craziest things about this passage is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were super influential and helpful to the Babylonian Empire. They were very high up. They were one of the, the, one of the three, four key leaders in the area. And so they refused. They would not allow that to happen. So they are seeking the good, and yet sometimes when you seek the good, what will it get you? Trouble. No good deed goes unpunished, just the expression sometimes goes. But we know how valuable they were because they're given an opportunity. All right, so if you take a look, here's what happens. So at this time, they don't bow down, right? So like all these people are bowing everywhere except for these three Jewish men. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sounds of, and then it lists off all these musical instruments, must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into the blazing furnace. But there are some Jews who have you set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. Now, one of the unique things we see here is these men have been actively doing what God has called them to do, and they have gotten political attackers. And one of the ways we see that is they are called, specifically called out as Jews. Now, do they look Jewish? No, they look like a Babylonian. Why would you bring Judaism, or in this case, your race up, unless you know that that's going to get you somewhere? It's one of those kind of ways to dig into them, because what's one of the things we know about them? They were above reproach. And there's people who were jealous of them and did not like the fact that they had been placed over Babylon. You notice this. It would be like you're the governor of one of the most powerful regions in the world, and these three men are in charge, and they're not even Babylonian. They're from Israel, and we don't like that fact. So we know they were doing good, because if there was another way to get these men out, they would have come up with another strategy. But he, they single them out, and we also know that they are super valuable, because what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He gives them second chance. Now, if you know anything about Nebuchadnezzar, is he the kind of guy who gives a lot of second chances? Not overly, right? He is not that kind of guy. So he gives them a second chance. And he's like, when the music plays, you guys, you need to bow down. And then he, he says this, 
But if you do not worship, you will be thrown into the blazing furnace. And then here's his line. Then what God is going to be able to rescue you from my hands? He knows that this is not just a pledge of allegiance. He knows this is a challenge of religions, of faith, of superiority. And he puts it to them. Make a choice. And here's where we get to some of the difficulties. They have a million what-if questions that they're struggling with. What if we bow? What if we don't bow? What if, what if, what if? Now, how many of us have our what-ifs right now? So for some of us, you know, what if, well, I'll just speak as an Upton Lake teacher. What if I don't make enough money to retire at 67 or 75 or whatever the age will be when I finally hit that point in life? What if I don't have enough? What if I lose people who I love? What if I am honest in this situation and it costs me dearly? What if? Their question is, what if we don't bow down? What if we do bow down? So I want you to take a moment and reflect for just a second. If I had more time, I would have given you guys handouts as I usually do. But I want you to think about what is your what if question right now? What is the what if that is driving you crazy? The fear, the concern, the worry, the stress. What's your what if? Because here is where we're going to find our answer. He says, what God can save you from my hand? And then here's where we are introduced to the faith of these men, right? Here's what they say in verse 18. But even if, do you see the difference? He doesn't say what if. He says, but even if our God does not rescue us from your hand, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. He answers the what if with an even if. So let's go back to the question. Even if I can't retire, I will still seek to be faithful to God and obey him. Even if being honest costs me something dear, I will be faithful and I will continue to obey him. Even if the people that I love and want in my life, all of my life, even if and when they die and pass away, even if I lose the thing I want most in this world, even if I will not lose my faith or be disobedient. And that's what these, that's what these three men say. Even if. So what's your what if? What if fill in the blank happens or doesn't happen? Can you answer that question with, even if my worst case scenario takes place, I will not let go of my faith. And they're going to have a reason for why they're going to be able to say this, even if. Because in the midst of trouble, they know that their God is with them, right? That is their strength. Because again, Isaiah 43, this walking through water and passing through fire had been written 150 years earlier. They knew this passage. Now, did they believe, I, Mr. Walker and I have had this debate many years. Uh, did they believe that God was going to supernaturally save them from this furnace? Mr. Walker says, yes, he believes that they would. And I say, I think they expected to die. It doesn't almost matter which side of that equation you're on. They knew that there was going to be a consequence. And they said, even if you throw us into the fire, we are not going to do that. And one of the crazy things is they're going to have their eyes fixed on something that they can't see and didn't even fully know because their what if line is pointing to Jesus because I want you to fast forward from from this point of Babylon back to Jerusalem from these three men standing before a king to a king standing before a governor and Pontius Pilate looks at this man Jesus and he says they have these accusations against you answer me don't you know that I have the power to set you free and what does Jesus say you don't have the power to set me free. That's a power that comes from God alone. 
And I am a king, but not a king like what you think. And Pontius Pilate and Nebuchadnezzar see a person who has this faith in this line in the sand. Jesus was not trying to undermine Rome directly, nor was he necessarily assimilating to Roman culture. Nebuchadnezzar wanted these men to bow and they refused. And they had their eyes fixed on another person who's going to do something else, even more amazing. Because they're going to enter into the fire and Jesus is going to enter into the fire and we're going to see some pretty big differences. So this what if, battling the what if with the even if. Can we believe that even if bad things happen, that the Lord who put us in those situations is going to do something amazing? Nobody looking at the crucifixion of Jesus at that moment would have said this is the greatest thing that's ever happened on planet Earth. If you didn't know much, you would assume it's another Jewish man being executed by the Romans. If you believed he was the Messiah, you're like, this is the saddest day in my life. The teacher that I love is being killed. And if you have an eternal perspective, hell was being conquered and sin was being overthrown. In the same moment, everyone was weeping his death. Is it possible that on a smaller scale, your what-if scenarios are going to serve those kinds of goals? Badrach, Meshach, and Abednego had confidence in this, and they willingly went. They had a kind of confidence that's kind of amazing. They're like, we don't need to defend ourselves to you, O king. Who says that to the guy who could literally have your head taken off? But they do because they're seeing something bigger. So they were able to go through these trials because they loved God. And they were able to be great politicians. I know this is like a hard thing to say. They were some very, very godly politicians because they loved God first and foremost. So here's the, here's the truth for us. If we love God first above everything else, we will actually be better fathers we will be better workers, we will be better ministers. But if we love our kids more than God, if we love our jobs more than God, if we love our ministries more than God, those things actually become destructive. And the good thing becomes an idol, which becomes a terrible thing. But if you wanna love your, the people in your life superior to anything else, you must love God above them. And these, these three men said, we love our jobs, we like being where we are. They were very wealthy, we like being wealthy but we love God more. He's number one. And if that means we have to face the fires, so be it. Now, if we were going to make this into a movie, these three men boldly stand before a king, make a declaration. If you were going to write this storyline, if this was like a Christian movie, <laughs> then suddenly all the other Jews would stand up all over the kingdom. And then all the other people would be like, that's so brave. And they would all stand up and they would take these three men on their shoulders and march off to victory. But what happens? They are killed, right? Or at least that's the anticipation. They are bound. We are told that Nebuchadnezzar's rage boils over. And in a, an angry moment of counterproductivity, he shoots himself in the foot in two different ways. Because isn't this ironic that when we lose control, we end up hurting ourselves. He, he is so angry. He's like, make this fire as hot as humanly possible and throw these men in. So in the process, he gets rid of three of his most loyal subjects who have never in any way undermined his authority. And what else happens at the heat of this fire? His soldiers die. Now, again, are these soldiers just like casual privates in the military? These are probably his elite guards because they're the ones standing by him. So he is so angry. He's like, throw them in and throw them in right now. And his, his, his anger is so evident that the guards are like, whatever you say, and in the process of trying to get rid of these men, they themselves are burned to death. And, and that's a sermon for another time. But just a, a side note for us dads and anyone who struggles with anger, just remember in our angry moments, oftentimes we are hurting ourselves to be careful. 
right? To be very, very careful when anger rears its head, because like Nebuchadnezzar, we might end up doing things that we would later ultimately regret. So now we have a picture. Everyone take a look at the picture. If you've never seen this before, awesome. If you have seen this before, go with which thing you see first. And this is what I am going to do the show of hands, all right? Who sees the frog? Okay. I know some of you are like, what? Frog? Okay, who sees the horse? All right, for those of you who see the horse, you're like, there's a frog there? There is both. And I'm, I do have an actual point. I will try to elaborate briefly. All right. I know, this will be fun. So if you're a horse, if you do the horse, here's the horse's eye, horse's ear, mane, nose. It's kind of looking off in that direction. So if you saw the frog, do you see the horse now? I'm not going to take too much time. So if you don't, come see me after church. We'll look at it again. All right, if you see the horse and you're like, where in the world is the frog? Here's the frog's eye. Here's his mouth, front leg, hind leg, sitting on a lily pad, looking that direction. All right, does everyone see it now? If you don't, again, come see me after church. We will elaborate. Here's why I bring this up. We think we see reality as it is. We think we see it. And until someone else comes along and says there's more to it than what you think you see, we sometimes believe that what we see is, is all that there is. And one of the crazy points about this story is when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the furnace, who shows up? Jesus does. The son of the gods, a fourth person, shows up in the fire. And if we're not careful, what do we think is happening there? That for the first time in this storyline, God shows up in their life. But is that really what's been happening? Or has God been faithfully walking with them from their captivity through eating meat sacrificed to idols, through standing up before a golden statue, standing before a king, and ultimately thrown into the fire? He was with them the entire time. Because the promise of God is not that when bad times happen, then I'm there. What's the promise? I am with you through it all. I don't show up when t bad times are happening. I've always been with you through the bad times. Because I love you and I'm with you. You are my people and I am your father. And so if we're not careful, we can look at the story and believe that Jesus began to show up in the midst of this when in reality, he'd been with him the whole time. What did he allow? He allowed Nebuchadnezzar to see this for Nebuchadnezzar's good and for the strengthening of the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So Jesus joins them in the furnace. And it's been stated, and I, I think it's very true, John Stott in one of his books writes, if, if there was a, not a God who experienced suffering, I could not be a believer in God at all. Who can believe in a God who does not understand pain living in the world we live in? What does the Christian message tell us? Not only do we have a God who understands suffering, we have a God who entered into suffering on purpose to walk with us through that suffering. Our God understands pain. Our God understands suffering. No other religion believes that. No other religion believes that. And one of the things we're going to see is these three men had a confidence in something they didn't fully grasp, but that for us, looking back, we can see something amazing. Because the furnace is showing us a picture of the cross. So I want to show how the cross supersedes the furnace and how these three men, in the midst of their trial, are thrown into this furnace is actually pointing to something greater for each of us to comprehend and think about. So both are going to be executed by a world system. But what's the difference? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walk out of that fire. Does Jesus walk off the cross? No. 
but does he come back? He does. And similar to how Nebuchadnezzar stands up and is like, didn't we throw just three men in? Why is there a fourth? And why are they walking around unbound? And then he calls for them, come out of the furnace. And then he says, there is no God like these men's God. There is no one who saves in this way. And when Jesus resurrects from the dead, the same command is given to us. Can we look to Jesus and say, there is no God like this God. There is no God who saves in this way. And so with what happens for one king is meant to happen to each of our hearts after the resurrection happens. Oh, sorry, not there yet. That's coming up. Number two, both are going to be bound when executed. So these men are tied up with their ropes. And how is Jesus bound? Right? He is, re he is restrained even more severely than just having his hands cuffed. And unlike Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their ropes are the only thing that burns on their bodies. The only thing that burns up is the restrictions. But when you think about Christ, what is the only scar that we know he has upon the resurrection? Is the scars that remind us of his being bound. Because he was bound and not freed, we who are bound are freed. Number three, the fire was meant to destroy them and all it really did was purify them. And they were free. They were brought out of the fire. But was Jesus brought out of the fire? He went through it all. He descended to the very depths in order to free us. So in order for us to walk out of our fire of trouble and addiction and sin and pain, he had to go through it all in order to give us the strength to take the steps out. Number four, he was totally abandoned on the cross. Right? One of the, one of the things he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He alone knows what that's like. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in their fire, who joins them? God himself joins them so that in their trial, they aren't alone. So Jesus is able to go through these things in order for us to know when we go through our pain, when we go through our suffering, he's right there with us. And we don't go through that alone. And last but not least, before we get to our last story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were executed and ultimately glorified. They were raised back up they were honored. They were put on the top of the heap. Because Jesus did not come down off the cross, he too is raised up according to Philippians chapter 2 and set above everything and every throne and given a name that is above all names. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess on heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. That we have the opportunity to do that now as believers. These men were elevated. And if we trust in what Christ says is true, one day, every one of us in this room will also be elevated. So he's willing to go deep. He's willing to go very far to grab us. And one of the things that's amazing to us oftentimes when we think about sacrifice is what is being sacrificed in order for the saving of others. And um, when I was preparing this sermon a while ago, I was looking up examples of sacrifices, and this guy's name kept coming up over and over again pretty much everywhere I looked. Uh, he was a Vanderbilt. He was the great-grandson of Cornelius. His name was, give me a moment... Alfred, good name, right? So Alfred Vanderbilt was a, an heir to a estate in a millions and millions and millions of dollars, very powerful, very famous. And he was on the Lusitania in the 19-teens at the beginning of World War I. And for those of you who are history people, what happened to the Lusitania? It was hit by a torpedo and sank in like, uh, Mr. Barton, you remember how many minutes? 15 minutes. If my memory serves correct, the Titanic took several hours to sink. And you think about how many people died on the Titanic? The Lusitania sank in like 15 minutes. And since 
Alfred was probably the wealthiest, most powerful, well-connected person on the Lusitania, had first access to the ships, to the, the escape buoys, and he was given a life vest. And you know what he did? He gave up his spot on the lifeboat for others so that they could leave. And then when the ship went down, he took off his life vest and gave it to another, and his body was lost to the bottom of the Atlantic, never to be found. And we look at a sacrifice like that, and we're like, wow, Alfred v Vanderbilt, millionaire, powerful, connected person, gave up his right to life in order to save other people. And that moves us. But then elevate that for a second. If that moves us, or any other story that you think about sacrifice, for those of you who love military illustrations and all the people who sacrifice in order to save others, we serve the king of all kings who gave up the glory of heaven to become a homeless man on planet earth to save us. To the level that he came down is the level to which he's going to raise us up. He makes the Vanderbilt sacrifice look like nothing in comparison. And yet, does that move us? Does that cause us to be able to say, you know what? If you gave up everything, then I can give up everything for you. You took the crown of thorns. I'll take whatever thorns you bring me. Because I believe that if I take the crown of thorns that Jesus had to carry and will call me to walk through, then the crown of glory will also be given to us. And that one day we will stand before him. Now, one of the amazing points here is that there was glory through life and death. Now, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not die in this moment. They were freed. They were supernaturally rescued. And many of us in this room know tons of examples of people who are on death's door and were supernaturally rescued, right? We teach, for those of us who are up to late, you know, Mrs. Mr. Deshay, many of us know his story. His heart was on the edge. He was going to die. And now he's home, right? With a new heart and a new kidney and a new lease on life. And we're just like, how did that happen? But yet at the same time, we all know people who were not given all those things, and did die. And here's the challenge for us. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego escaped the fire, but did they escape death? No. It found them eventually. Just like it's going to find each of us eventually. And when these Christians, the picture up here, right, these Christians who stood by their faith, as far as I know, not too many Christians miraculously survived the lion's attack, or the burnings, or the executions. And yet, both Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these early Christians who did not get spared, brought glory to God and changed the world. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, this is one of the other steps that God used to get Nebuchadnezzar's attention. And the death of these Christians was another step to change the Roman Empire and ultimately bring us to where we stand today sitting in this church. To see, here's the thing. Do we believe that God's going to save us? Maybe not out of the fire, but through the fire. And one day, we're all going to stand before it. And if we have Christ as our lifeline, then we will stand by his grace and his strength. Or we won't. And so my last thought for us this morning, where do you stand with him? Where do you stand with Christ? Is he just something that, you know, we kind of know, we believe, we've heard a lot of stories about him, but it doesn't necessarily impact the way that I make my choices. It doesn't impact where I draw the line. If we are the type that easily can oscillate between assimilation and Christianity, that's a problem. And there has to be this line in the heart and in the mind. And it really boils down to this. Is Jesus Christ who he says he is, or is he not? If he is, then there's nothing we sacrifice or give up that will not ultimately be given back to us a hundredfold 
but that doesn't necessarily mean he's always going to take us out of the fire. And so my hope for us is that we would keep our eyes fixed on this, this longing for something we've never seen. And so all of us are orphans. All of us are exiles. For those of us who've been adopted by Christ, right, who are now in that family, we are now called to tell the other orphans in our lives that there is a father who loves us and wants us, who's calling to us. And for those of us who have children in our homes right now, let's begin with those little exiles that live right beside us every single day and call them to know this Jesus, to call them to seek after him, to be able to say one day, Cademan, or me, Cademan, Sophie, and Asher, you're going to be out of our house and you're going to be in the wider Babylonian world and you're going to be told all kinds of messages, stand on Christ and help them learn why they can trust in that. And not give them any kind of false promises that there's not going to be suffering or not going to be difficulty, but that there is going to be a glory that goes with it and a salvation that will come. Because we were created for something bigger than this planet, bigger than this life. And if that reality sets in with us, we then can move through the fires and the joys and the sufferings and the blessings and not have our faith destroyed in the process. Because we know that in those moments of difficulty, there is one who stands beside me closer than a brother, who's leading me from the orphanage, ultimately to my father's house. And one day I will close my eyes to this orphan planet and I will open my eyes to the home that I've always wanted to go to but didn't even know was there. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, we were created with longings and most of the longings that we have, we find meaning in. So we're created to long for food and we will go home in just a little bit and we will eat a meal and will you be hungry? For a moment you won't be, but you will be again. The longing for food is met with food, which exists in real life. So what, what if we long for something that we've never met in this life? And here's, what, here's how the quote goes, and I'll end on this. If I find myself desiring something which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. So when those moments of longing strike you, and Father's Day may be one of those moments longing for a parental family member uh, acceptance that we never had. When those moments hit, remember we were made for another place, a true father, a true home, and we're all moving towards it in some way, shape, or form if you're a believer. You bow your heads with me. Lord, um, I just pray that in those moments where there is heartbreak, sometimes Father's Day, Mother's Day, Christmas, these, these holidays, these moments remind us of the things we don't have, remind us of the broken promises, remind us of just this fallen world. Even if we have good parents and everything has gone very well, there is still the missing things in us that nothing in this world fills. And when those moments do come for us, help us, Lord, to long for the right thing, to long for more of you, to long for heaven. And we thank you, Lord, that we have... Uh, the story of the cross. We have the reality of our experiences on this earth to show us that way. And if there's anyone here who has never surrendered, who's never seen what is offered to them, I pray, Lord, that there would be a calling of you that would not be ignored and a desire to be adopted, to let go of our, our orphanage life and embrace what you offer us in, in this life and in the one to come. And we thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Stand and join us, please.
Thank you, but I...